Welcome back to Spoiler Free Wrestling, the podcast edition. And on this show, we're going to talk everything that's been making the news in the last week in the world of pro wrestling. So we've got a lot to talk about this week. We've got AEW Dynamite. We've got NXT. We've got uh, Fallout from the Survivor Series. And we've got Impact Wrestling traveling back to the early 1980s. For what was a really interesting show, and I'm looking forward to talking all about the Impact Provincial Wrestling Federation show, which I had a chance to go to, and unfortunately I couldn't make it, and I I really regret not attending that show live. It certainly came off very well on TV, and it's getting a lot of positive feedback from those who saw it. It's getting some negative feedback from those who did not see it, but those who saw it seem to uh, really enjoy it anyway. But unfortunately, there is a rather disappointing topic to talk about right on the lead here, and it involves Mauro Ranallo, the play-by-play commentator for NXT, not being at the booth on Wednesday night. Now, Mauro is a very well-respected combat sports commentator. He's done, he's called all the biggest fights for Showtime boxing, including Floyd Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao. He was the voice of Pride. He's done commentary for Bellator MMA. Mauro Ranallo is very respected in his field. Now, during the War Games show on Saturday, Corey Graves tweeted out the following as the show was going on. Just for the record, guys, I know you wouldn't know it, but there's actually a WWE Hall of Famer and a former Ring of Honor champion on commentary. I'd imagine they have a lot to offer, with the insinuation being that Moro talks a lot and therefore the other two aren't able to get in a word in edgewise. Now, hey, you know... Maybe Corey Graves says that about Michael Cole, and it's not a big deal. And in fact, probably if he did say it about Michael Cole, it wouldn't be a big deal. But there's a very important difference in this case. And it's that we've seen this situation play out before, and we saw it have a very negative impact on Mauro Ranallo's mental well-being. And Mauro Ranallo has bipolar disorder. And... Things like this can can really send him to a bad place. And fortunately, because of people like Mauro Ranallo, who are very open with their the mental health issues that they experience, it's a lot... It, we're starting to know more about how... Um, how people living with mental, issue, mental health issues, we're learning more about some of the difficulties that they face. And this is also helping more people living with mental health issues become open about what they're experiencing. We've seen big cast, Tyson Fury. That's all great. Myself, I've had uh, obsessive compulsive disorder for my entire life. Uh, Well, my entire adult life. And uh, it's never been easier to talk about it than it is now. And that's because of, of people like Mauro Ranallo being really open about it. So... If Corey had said this about Michael Cole, whatever. Corey says it about Mauro Ranallo in a very similar way that John Bradshaw Layfield had been critical of Mauro Ranallo in the past. Um, 
Morrow had won an award back in uh, like 2016, 2017, something like that. And on some WWE network show, which they don't do anymore, I can't remember the name of it, uh, Bradshaw basically ran down Mauro Ranallo and belittled this award. And it led to Mauro not wanting to work with the main WWE anymore. And he would eventually return with NXT. And so what happens when NXT is the third brand? And he's sort of somewhat put back in this mix a little bit. Well, another commentator just comes along and bashes him publicly. So the reason that Corey really should have known better was because we've all seen this happen before. But Corey went ahead and did it. And maybe it's one thing if he just sort of forgot the JBL thing, which is likely what happened. But it afterwards, Corey kind of his actions well first of all he has not taken down the tweet there was two tweets that were critical of Mauro Ranallo one said he was making too many rap references they're both still up so on some level that means Corey wants to stand by what he said and the other is that his apology, which he gave on his own podcast, sort of wasn't sufficient. So here is the apology that Corey gave on his podcast. So right at the beginning of the show, he says, before we go any further, on a personal note, I need to address something. This past Saturday during the TakeOver Wargames event, I sent out a tweet. It was an unpopular opinion, as I often do with the intention of just stirring up a little controversy, maybe have it have something fun to talk about on TV or here on this on the show. It was maybe not the most professional way to go about things, and it was never meant to offend or disrespect or disparage anybody. I'll just stop right there. It was, though. It was meant to disrespect and disparage Mauro Ranallo. And so was the tweet saying that he was using far too many rap references. That was the intent. So continuing with his apology. It would, if it was taken as such, I apologize deeply. That was not my intention. I would never intentionally cause anybody any undue stress, especially a coworker. So I apologize. So his apology saying like he never meant to disparage anybody. That doesn't make any sense because the tweet literally 100% of what it was, was disparaging somebody. So to say it wasn't meant to do that doesn't ring true. The other part of this that happened, which is troubling, is that it was leaked to anonymous source-based website, the Pro Wrestling Sheet, which is an anonymous-based, anonymous source-based website. And so we got this story that was printed by the Pro Wrestling Sheet. Now, we don't know who told them this story. We don't know... Uh, what their possible motivations for telling Pro Wrestling Sheet this story was. We don't know if it was Moro, or sorry, we don't know if it was Corey. We don't know if it was somebody close to Corey Graves. All we know is some stuff was sent to the Pro Wrestling Sheet, and they printed it. So this is what uh, Pro Wrestling Sheet uh, printed. They said, according to sources, 
Corey wrote those tweets to play into the brand warfare element of Survivor Series, and the SmackDown announcer planned to bring them up on commentary in a joking manner when he was joined by Morrow at the desk the following day. Now, many people have pointed out, if this was part of some angle, the it, it should have been, Morrow should have been in on it. So there's some troubling aspects to what was sent to the pro wrestling sheet. And again, we don't know who sent it. You know, we don't know if this was Corey sending them information. You know, it, it would be really nice to know who the source is if the source is just Corey trying to cover his ass. We don't even know that. But the bottom line is, Graves has given a few reasons for why he sent the tweets. One, he was trying to play into the brand war warfare element. And that was the anonymous info sent to Pro Wrestling Sheet. And the other is that he was just trying to stir up some controversy so he could talk about it on his podcast, which is what he said on his podcast. And neither of those two things is okay. Trying to stir up some controversy to get attention on yourself by disparaging somebody else, a co-worker who went through a mental health breakdown the last time it happened, and then to play it off in the way that he has, I think is unacceptable. And I think for me personally, I'm no longer a Corey Graves fan. And, and this story is, is the reason for it. And, and hopefully Corey Graves can grow a little bit as a person from this experience. Because by his own admission, he was just trying to stir up some controversy. Just trying to get people to listen to his podcast. And he didn't care who he fucked over along the way. And that's, and that's what we're dealing with. That's what Mauro Ronaldo is dealing with. That's what everybody who misses Mauro Ronaldo on NXT commentary is dealing with. But I really don't want to talk about that anymore. I want to talk about what I think was maybe, oh, maybe not the best thing to happen in wrestling this week. But it was a very enjoyable thing to watch in wrestling this week. Impact! Impact Wrestling, I thought, produced a very... Well, I mean, they did produce a very unique show that in another era in pro wrestling might just get shit on. But... They did a show from the Don Kolov Arena in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, which is... Uh, a few go, trop, go train stops away from where this podcast is being recorded. And the whole thing was that they were going back to 1983. They all had 80s-themed gimmicks. And it was done tremendously. But none of it was the best part. And this is not to... Uh, say that nothing else was on this level, but only to just say that this was fantastic, was Jordine Grace, Tessa Blanchard, Jessica Havoc, and Alexia Nicole as the, as the Rough Riders, which is a four-horseman-type group. And Canadians will know that Rough Riders is uh, a bit of a, like a Canadian inside joke for years, we had, uh, in the Canadian Football League, there was two teams, both named the Rough Riders. There was the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the Ottawa Rough Riders. The Ottawa Rough Riders eventually folded, and, and later a team would come back named the Ottawa Red Blacks. 
But it was just weird. It was like, we have a football league with eight teams in it, and two of them are named the Rough Riders. Just, it was odd. But anyway, they were the Rough Riders, and they cut a very Four Horsemen-style promo where they were going to beat their opponent, party at the Marriott, and uh, I believe it was Havoc who said that the once they get back to the Marriott, the Tunnel of Love is going to be open all night long. So it was, I think it was last week on the show, and I've done this a couple of times, where I just listed off a whole bunch of reasons to watch Impact Wrestling. And part of this is I'm a little biased because their head office is real close to here. Whenever they come to Toronto, the show's in the Rebel Nightclub, I'm always there. It's just, it's fun. I really enjoy going to the shows. And I, I, I regret missing this one so much. So much. But I have to imagine that they will go back to this at some point. There's no way that they don't end up doing this again. That they don't make this some type of annual show, or maybe more than annual. You know, I think you could do it every few months where you have this show that it's not related to anything else that you've been doing. Like, nothing on this show had anything to do with the storylines that they had been building up. It was a, it was a complete one-off, not-related-to-anything show. There was nothing about Tessa Blanchard and Sammy Callahan. If you remember at the last... On the last Impact, so the November 19th or 20th show, Tessa Blanchard won the gauntlet match to qualify for a shot at Sammy Callahan's World Championship. So that's the main event of the Hard to Kill pay-per-view. But that pay-per-view is not coming up till mid-January, right? So, so there's time here to have a little bit of fun. And so the Rough Riders, I think, were, you know, a very key part of this show. But there was also, like, the wrestlers that the Rough Riders wrestled all had very unique and descriptive ring names. So Josh Alexander was Tim Burr, and that was a lumberjack. And Tim Burr, during the show, they played it up like he was the first person to ever do a double axe handle. Like, he was on the top, and he put up one hand, and then he kind of, like, paused and, like, slowly put up his other hand. And then joined hands, and Don Callis lost his mind. Like, a double axe handle! A double axe handle! It's two axe handles from the Lumberjack! And then later in the match, Tessa Blanchard would win with the DDT. And Don Callis and Josh Matthews, who were Sexton Hardcastle, and I, I can't remember what Josh Matthews' gimmick name was for the show, but... Callis was um, Sexton Hardcastle, which was actually Edge's independent wrestling name before he signed with WWE. So Edge had actually wrestled as Sexton Hardcastle around the same area where this show was being held, just in the mid mid uh, mid nineties, kind of around then. So there was Timber, Trey Miguel was building. Um, Zachary Wentz was Ray Strack, and he was a race car driver. It was very similar to, um, what was that Will Ferrell movie where he wanted to go fast to Talladega Nights? Very similar to that. So Racetrack is like, I got alligator blood and, and I want to go fast. And 
his whole move set was like he'd run the ropes like he wants to go really fast and then there was a sunset flip and he was uh sitting down after and he started like pretending like he was driving a car and changing the gears like everybody really went all out with their gimmicks for this and in just a a piece of classic cosplay sammy callahan dressed up as sunny sanders in a suit with a tennis racket like very much a spoof on Jim Cornette. And of course, Jim Cornette and Sammy Callahan have had their history in the past. Both of them are gone from MLW now. But in a show they had, a show that MLW had in Milwaukee earlier this year, Callahan came out and like threw a water bottle at Jim Cornette because of these comments that Cornette had made about Sonny Kiss. And... Then there was a big kerfuffle where Callahan was let go from the promotion after that, but not for what he did to Cornette. Court Bauer came out, out and said, we're letting Callahan go because he caused all this damage to the venue, which is something Callahan has actually gotten in trouble in before. Uh, uh, like he, he got in trouble in a show in Chicago where he was damaging the venue and security. Like, came in during the show. Um, but Callahan, I guess, caused some damage to the venue. So Court Bauer put out a statement saying, like, oh, look, we love Sammy, but uh, it makes it very hard for us to book that venue again after he caused, <coughs> excuse me, thousands of dollars worth of damage to it. So Callahan was gone after that. And then not long after that, they just announced that they weren't bringing Cornette back either. And it was just saying, like, well, he doesn't have any more dates booked with us. They didn't really give a reason. Um, and now Cornette's gone from the NWA, too. But anyway, so Callahan was all dressed up as uh, Jim Cornette for this match. Uh, Julian Cumberbun was played by Ethan Page. And he was taking on Downtown Daddy Brown. He was played by Willie Mack. And uh, it was a very 80s-themed match. 80s moves, 80s everything. But downtown Daddy Brown was able to get the win, and that sends uh, Julian Cumberbun out of the territory. Uh, but we'll just see what happens the next time Impact Wrestling decides they want to do sort of a throwback show like this again. Who knows? We might see Julian Cumberbun back. We might not. But uh, I thought this was an excellent show for Impact Wrestling, and I think this is sort of what their mo is right now just do things outside of the box and see who you attract because tessa blanchard challenging for the impact world championship now if you've been watching impact for the last two years it's not really that outside of the box because of you know just if you've been following tessa blanchard it all works but it still is something that's going to be seen as outside of the box to your average wrestling fan who who isn't following impact super closely so that was outside of the box, maybe something done to get people talking, um, uh, done in a bit healthier of a way than, than Corey Graves likes to get people talking. Um, Tessa Blanchard being done to get people talking, throwback show to get people talking. And I think there's, like I said last week, there's a lot of reasons to follow Impact Wrestling. It's not the most popular pro wrestling company in the world. They don't have the biggest attendance at their shows. But if you get into it, there's a lot to latch on to with Impact right now. 
Also this week, Becky Lynch passed Ronda Rousey in terms of having the longest single reign in the history of the Raw Women's Championship. Now, granted, this championship only goes back a few years to, uh, it was originally the Divas Championship, then it was the Women's Championship, and then it was the Raw Women's Championship. So it's only a few years old, but still the longest championship reign ever. Um, is the current one from Becky Lynch. She's held the title since WrestleMania 35. And at 233 days, she passed Ronda Rousey's record. And Rousey was the last Raw Women's Champion before Becky Lynch. And she had held the title from SummerSlam 2018 to WrestleMania 35, 232 days. The third longest reign in the history of the Raw Women's Championship belongs to Alexa Bliss, who won the title on the August 28, 2017 Raw and then held it all the way to WrestleMania 34. The fourth longest single reign in the history of the Raw Women's Championship is Charlotte Flair, who held the title from WrestleMania 32 when it was actually... She had a, actually held the title for a few months prior to this, but it was the Divas Championship, and uh, that was from WrestleMania 32 to July 25th, 2016. That was 113 days. And then the fifth longest reign in the history of this title is Alexa Bliss, again from Payback 2017 to SummerSlam 2017, which is 112 days as champion. Now, in terms of the combined days spent as Raw Women's Champion, Alexa Bliss still tops that list by quite a bit, actually. She's a three-time champion, 398 total days spent as the Raw Women's Champion. Charlotte Flair comes in second on that list. She's a four-time champion with 242 days spent as champion. Becky Lynch is a one-time champion at 233. Ronda Rousey is a one-time champ at 232. Sasha Banks is a four-time champion, but only 82 days spent as champion. The only other two women to win the belt are Bailey and Nia Jax, who each did it once. Bailey held the title for 76 days, and Nia Jax for 70. Another bit of news that has sort of been taking place in the last few weeks, actually, but we haven't really been talking about it, is these videos that are being released on Matt Hardy's official YouTube channel. He's calling these the uh, Free the Delete videos, but they all feature basically normal Matt Hardy being talked to by uh, some voice that's telling him he's strayed from his path. And then we see broken Matt Hardy in his dreams appearing to him in the mirror. Also in these videos, Matt Hardy tries to get Vanguard 1 to teleport him back in time to 2016 when he was the hottest thing in wrestling. They're, I mean, they're... They're funny, but they're also sort of alluding to this idea. Like, is Matt Hardy going to bring back the broken character? Is it up to him? We saw Matt Hardy this week on Raw. And he lost to... Was that this week? We saw him recently on Raw. Yeah, I think it was. He lost to uh, Blake Murphy. There, he took a bunch of knees to the face and then just lost the match. Uh, and Rebby Hardy is actually due to give birth soon. So I don't know if we're going to be seeing a lot of Matt Hardy on, based on the fact that 
his wife is about to give birth. His brother uh, is out with an injury. Um, so we're not going to see the Hardy Boys anytime soon. But we are seeing these videos where Matt is alluding to his broken persona is trying to break through. His broken persona is trying to get him back on, on the path he had been when he was broken Matt Hardy. And in the final moments of the video that he released, I think yesterday, this voice tells Hardy to go to the Lake of Reincarnation. But all of this is sort of happening outside of WWE's grasp. So this isn't WWE doing it. This is Matt Hardy doing it. But it's weird because there was the Matt Hardy Halloween special or, or there was like a winter holiday special. I can't remember. But there were House Hardy, Broken Matt Hardy videos on the WWE Network. And there was one that even main evented a raw once but somehow these videos and this broken universe which a lot of fans really loved and yeah back in 2016 the broken matt hardy universe really was if not the most popular like it was a very popular thing in wrestling and it based on what matt hardy has been saying in interviews and sort of what has been hinted at in these videos is Matt Hardy wants to, to bring back the broken universe. Now, whether that happens in WWE or it happens somewhere else, who knows? But it's clear that that's sort of where Matt Hardy would like to go. But the ball isn't totally in his court. There's also two bits of news this week as it concerns trademarks and WWE applying to trademark some things and Cody applying to trademark some things. So WWE, uh, I'm not sure if it was this week, but they have applied to trademark two names of former ECW events, those being barely legal which was the promotion's first ever pay-per-view, and CyberSlam, which was a wrestling event slash convention that ECW ran from 1996 to 2000. I was like, what are they trademarking these for? Out of all, you know, I mean, they've definitely applied to trademark these two terms. The only question is, why? ECW is not coming back. They tried that once. But it's possible WWE just wants to make sure that they are keeping event names um, trademarked to them. And that could be due, this is just speculation, but it could be due to Cody filing to trademark several WCW event names, in particular bash at the beach so cody has filed for trademarks for slamboree super brawl bash at the beach which is going to be the chris the shows they tape on on the chris jericho cruise you're going to be referred to as bash at the beach so it's not going to be a pay-per-view event it's just going to be a regular dynamite event now what they would do with slamboree or super brawl who knows so Cody was trademarking these before AEW started. 
And it was one of those things. So, you know, working for the, the dirt sheets, you just put out a little, um, uh, they're called Google alerts, right? So all you do is you put out a Google alert on like a website that, um, lists who's applied for what trademarks, that kind of thing. And you get a little notice and then you'd be like, Oh, Cody's trying to, to apply for bash at the beach or something like that. That's how dirt sheets make sure they get this scoop before other people. And then Cody came out. So Cody's doing all this stuff. And then Cody basically came out on Twitter and said, Hey guys, maybe turn those Google alerts off for those, uh, trademarks. And, uh, I remember like, the guys from Fightful were, were like, yeah, turn off the Google alerts and just come on over to Fightful. And I was like, no, he's talking to you. He said, like, anyway. Um, so, anyway, so, but honestly, like people did. People stopped paying attention to what Cody was trademarking. Oh, and Cody had said, like, I'm just trying to get some of my dad's cattle back. I remember he used that term, my dad's cattle. And he said, this has nothing to do with AEW. That turned out to not overly be the case. But of course, like the entire time he's saying this, I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. This absolutely has to do with AEW. And it turned out that it, that it did. So they have been able to get bash at the beach. Like they're able to use that. It's the other WCW terms that he hasn't got them yet. And while it's not clear what's happening, you know, WWE, which has Slamboree and Super Brawl on their WWE network, the belief is that they're going to fight him on some of these trademarks. So where that goes, who knows? But we definitely have Bash at the Beach coming up. Uh, I think like in Miami, they're going to do a show when the cruise docks or something like that. Uh, but Bash at the Beach definitely coming back. And when Cody said those trademarks weren't going to be for AEW purposes, he was being dishonest. Although, I mean, he could have meant that at the time and then things changed. So kind of give the guy the benefit of the doubt. But also, you know, if he did just sort of lie and say, hey, these aren't for AEW guys, just so WWE. Like, that's why he was saying he didn't want them reported on. Because if it's reported on, then WWE or other people know to fight it, right? So he wanted people to turn the Google alerts off so that it would all fly under the radar, which most people did. I mean, they're back to to not letting it fly under the radar now. But for a while there, everyone was just kind of letting Cody trademark some stuff and then not reporting about it. Or they really had turned off their Google alerts, which is possible too. But bottom line is, Cody attempted to trademark a bunch of WCW stuff. He's definitely got some. But he's being fought on some as well. And we don't know which or which. Except for Bash at the Beach, there are they've already put out advertising for this, so I think it's safe to say that the Bash of the Beach Bash at the Beach trademark uh has been granted. Alright, so let's just run through some of the results from the shows this week. On AEW Dynamite, we started things off with the best friends going up against the Lucha Bros. Also, in a match which aired on AEW Dark this week, Trent beat Pentagon Jr. in a singles match. 
And he beat him with that sort of reverse pile driver that he does. So Pentagon was going for a Canadian destroyer flip pile driver. Trent countered it into the sort of reverse pile driver. I'm forgetting the name for it right now, but and he got the pin on Pentagon. I thought that's a huge upset. And then that leads to the best friends taking on the Lucha Brothers. So we got tag team action this week. And this match ends with Trent pinning Phoenix with the reverse pile driver. So two very, very big wins in a row for Trent. And it's a big win for the best friends in the tag team division. As in the official AEW top five, the Lucha Bros were number one. And the best friends had been bumped out of the top five last week. So now... We updated our rankings on Thursday. AEW will update the rankings in about an hour and 10 minutes. They usually, um, it's 2.50 p.m. on Friday right now that I'm recording this. And they put them out at 4 o'clock on Friday on Twitter. Or social media. I find it on Twitter. So the question is then, what does the best friends beating the number one seed mean for their ranking? Now, the way we do rankings, we do it on a ladder format, right? And it, so it's we're trying to take out the subjectivity of it as much. So if you beat the number one seed, then you move ahead of the number one seed. So based on our system, the best friends would be at the number one spot. Lucha Bros would be in number two. We don't know if that's how AEW is going to do it. We're going to find out in about an hour and nine minutes. But regardless, we'll update our top five or our rankings uh, at Spoiler Free Wrestling so that our top five nears AEW's official top five. Um, I think that just makes sense since they are putting out an, an official top five. Our rankings are just more so you know who is in what division and sort of giving a general idea of who's doing the best in those uh, divisions. And so we'll have a matchup with AEW's top five when they put it out. So, yeah. We'll see. I mean, maybe the best friends are now going to be in line for a title shot. Maybe they're going to feud with the Lucha Bros more. It also seems like we're not done with the Lucha Bros and SCU. Like Pentagon and Christopher Daniels seem like they were building towards a, a match there. And we didn't see anything regarding that this week. But maybe that was just because... SEU had the title match against Chris Jericho to worry about, and the Lucha Bros were in this match here. Maybe we'll see more from Christopher Daniels and um, Pentagon in the future. So then B. Priestley and Emi Sakura defeated Hikaru Shida and Chris Statlander. I thought this was a bit of an upset as well, as Hikaru Shida is the number one seed. She looks like uh, she's going to be in line to face Riho soon. And Chris Statlander, uh, who debuted on Dark recently, a lot of people are said to be really high on her, including WWE, but it doesn't look like she's going to end up there. It looks like she's going to end up here. Um, it has not been made official that she's signed with AEW, but it looks like that's most likely coming. Uh, so it was Emi Sakura kind of got the win after doing some dirty underhanded tactics that the Freddie Mercury cosplayer has been known to do. Cody then won a singles match against uh, Matt Nix with a figure four. After the match, he was attacked by the Butcher and the Blade and Alley. Now, a lot of people sort of didn't know how to react to this because they didn't know the Butcher and the Blade. 
all of those guys. So the butcher and the blade are both from Buffalo, and Ali's from Toronto. I'm recording this in Toronto. I've seen all three of these on the independent scene here for years. And of course, Ali and Pepper Parks were in Impact for a long time too. But the butcher, the butcher is someone to keep your eye on. He's been in the Buffalo scene for a while, and he's just got this big, intimidating look. You know, he had the curled up mustache and the monocle. And um, so, yeah, he he was known as the Butcher of Buffalo or something like that. Um, but then I I, I kind of like this because I was there the night this tag team formed and they formed in Smash Wrestling, which is just a, an independent promotion here in, in uh, well, all of Canada. They go all around. They're actually pretty, pretty popular. And Smash really launched Ali's career, Ali and Rosemary and whole bunch of others. I mean, if you're a good wrestler from this area, you're going to end up in Smash at some point. So the Blade had been Pepper Parks. I think that was his name. I'm just going to pause and make sure I'm not an idiot. Uh, yep. No, his, uh, that's Pepper Parks. And um, so he, so the Blade and Allie are married. They've been married since 2013. And uh, the Butcher and the Blade have been a tag team just for the last couple of years when they formed in Smash Wrestling. Now, some people were saying, like, well, I don't get what's with all this, this sudden change in Allie. It's like, does nobody remember? Allie was just, she was being interviewed, I think, by Chris Van Vliet. And Chris Van Vliet, we always make sure to put his interviews up on our site. Um, he sends me the, the interviews and... I usually do transcriptions for him. I, I he's, um, definitely recommend his podcast and his videos. And, and most of his videos you can see at SpoilerFreeWrestling.com as well. So he's interviewing Ali and Brandy Rhodes and Awesome Kong just come and beat the crap out of Ali. And then they took a, a like a cut of Ali's hair that Awesome Kong then, you know, put on her belt as she is one to do. And so what happens here? Allie has now aligned with the Butcher and the Blade, and the Butcher and the Blade are going to get revenge on Brandy Rhodes' husband. So I think that's where all this is coming from. Unless uh, the Butcher, the Blade, and, and Allie were somehow hired by MJF and Wardlow to soften Cody up for them. But I think it just could be Cody is running into... Even more people with a bone to pick with him. So he's got enemies in MJF and Warlone. Maybe he's got a whole separate group of enemies here with the Butcher, the Blade, and the Bunny. Then Kenny Omega defeated Pac. And this was... So he won this match, but he won with a really clever pinning combination. And whenever somebody wins sort of with a clever pinning combination... There's sometimes this feeling like it's not settled. And the last time these two wrestled Pac, um, I'm not sure if Omega submitted or if it was a referee stoppage when Pac had Omega in the Brutalizer. But they're now one and one against each other, so I think we got a rubber match coming between Omega and Pac. But then the other thing, much like in the tag division, Pac was the number one seed in the men's singles division going into this match. And Kenny Omega beat him. So does that mean Omega is now the number one seed? Or does Omega move past Pac and they mo both move down a little bit? Who knows? We'll find out in about an hour and three minutes now.
Then we had the finals of the Dynamite Diamond Ring match. It was MJF defeating Adam Hangman Page and winning the Dynamite Diamond Ring, which was presented to him somewhat unenthusiastically from the Rhodes family friend, Diamond Dallas Page. And DDP used to defend a diamond ring when he was in WCW. In 1996, Diamond Dallas Page won the Battle Bowl. And you won a ring for that. You won a diamond ring. And so he would defend this. And anyway, we're talking about it a little bit on the um, Monday Night War podcast that me and Jeff Moss have been doing, where DDP is definitely on quite the win streak in WCW. But then we get to the main event. Oh, sorry, just going back to this uh, Dynamite Diamond uh, ring match. So this is a big win for MJF, because as AEW has gone on, MJF has always been outside of the top five. Not really in title contention, not a guy you think of as in title contention, but beating Hangman Page now and being able to say he's the Dynamite Diamond Ring champion moves him up a notch. So in our standings or rankings, I think we have him in at number three right now because that's what Page had been before he beat him. And I have to imagine, there's, it, it would be very surprising if AEW leaves him out of their top five in this week's rankings. I don't think they're going to do that. And then we had the main event for the AEW World Championship, Chris Jericho defeating Scorpio Sky, making him tap out to the Lion Tamer. Of course, this match had all been set up because Scorpio Sky had been the first wrestler to pin Chris Jericho in AEW, and he did so in a tag title match just a few days after Full Gear when Frankie Kazarian and Scorpio Sky defeated Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara. Now, to kick off AEW this week, Chris Jericho had his Thanksgiving thank you special. Even brought out his dad, former New York Rangers who ran down all the Chicago Blackhawks fans in the audience called Bobby Hull a wimp and just did a lot of this stuff that, um, I mean, we're starting to really expect these creative segments and promos from Chris Jericho. They're becoming a a staple in AEW and, and this was no different whatsoever. So from the opening segment, his Thanksgiving thank you to making Scorpio Sky tap out in the main event. It was a very pivotal episode of AEW Dynamite for the world champion, Chris Jericho. Now, for NWA Power this week, it's not a lot to talk about, to be perfectly honest. The show was unlike any other that they've put out. I believe this was the the just the eighth or or some some number of shows, but there was no Jim Cornette anywhere on this show. And of course, the natural inclination is to feel that they redid this show, re-edited this show, so that Jim Cornette wouldn't be on it. And so instead of having live in studio stuff, 
it was all without a studio audience there and all without Jim Cornette there. And they showed a lot of highlights from championship wrestling from Hollywood. But according to those involved in the organization, this had always been the plan for this episode. Eli Drake tweeted out that um, the, the, the show had not been re-edited because of what happened with Jim Cornette. It had always been planned this way. And I said last week, I'm not really too concerned with Jim Cornette leaving the NWA. A lot of people think differently. A lot of people think he was essential to NWA. I, I, I just disagree. And he was the color commentator. <laughs> a color commentator has never been essential to any wrestling promotion ever. I mean, they're, they can enhance it. They can sometimes even make it worse. But they're never going to make a bad product worth watching or a good product not worth watching. Right? Like, am I, am I alone in just thinking it's not that big of a deal that Jim Cornette is leaving NWA? Because I really don't think it's that big of a deal that Jim Cornette's leaving the NWA. And they say, oh, well, he had a lot of influence backstage. But honestly, I just, I just don't see it as that big of a deal. I don't. But we've got some matches now that are announced for Into the Fire. And the, the big one that was announced is Nick Aldis versus James Storm. Best two out of three falls match for the NWA World Championship. That's going to be your main event of the NWA's return to pay-per-view. And they have... Now, they've been doing pay-per-views regularly. They had the 70th anniversary show where Nick Aldis won the NWA World Heavyweight Championship back from Cody. They had the Crockett Cup tournament, which I thought was great. That was where PCO and Brody King won the Crockett Cup. There's a lot of other stuff on that show as well that was worth it. But Also, uh, we've got the debut of a three-person stable in the women's division. Melina seems to be the manager of Thunder Rosa and Marty Bell. And Thunder Rosa in particular seems to be someone the company is really getting behind she fought mma for combates uh america recently and they showed a lot of sort of a mini documentary that they've done on thunder rosa during nwa power this week as well so we'll see what uh, happens now there's just going to be a couple of more episodes of nwa power until the big pay-per-view on december the 14th and the subsequent tapings which will take place in the same studio after. So now let's go to NXT this week. Started out with a sort of an NXT celebration as several members of the roster came out to just revel in the fact that NXT did so well over Survivor Series weekend, but then the Undisputed Era came out and it led to a back and forth between heels and baby faces. And eventually we got Kyle O'Reilly and Bobby Fish defending the NXT Tag Team Championships against Dominic Dijakovic and Keith Lee. Now, Bobby Fish was injured just a few minutes into this match, and controversially, Roderick Strong was allowed to replace him mid-match and defend the titles. And the Undisputed Era would, in fact, successfully defend these titles. Um, even with Roderick Strong replacing Bobby Fish uh, from the starting in the early moments of the match. Mansoor, who we haven't seen a lot of since he won a big battle royal in Saudi Arabia, he defeated Shane Thorne this week, so that could be the start of a climb up the rankings for him. 
Then we had Candice LeRae versus Dakota Kai. And so this obviously a big grudge match after Dakota Kai turned on her team at the War Games uh, event on Saturday. So we saw a new side of Dakota Kai, which we really needed to see. Dakota Kai, I mean, she had her win-loss record, not stellar in NXT. And she didn't manage to impress Rhea Ripley enough to even make the War Games team. But she showed a more violent side to her at War Games when she turned on Tegan Knox and beat up Tegan Knox before... Well, and, and then neither Knox or Dakota Kai would enter the War Games match, putting their team at a four-on-two disadvantage. This match would end when Dakota Kai used the knee brace that she had taken off Tegan Knox and hit Candice LeRae in it, causing the DQ. And I think this is just the beginning of Dakota Kai developing this new personality and not being afraid to cheat, not being afraid to take things to a, a more violent level. We've got to see where Dakota Kai goes with this. This could be her chance to really move up the rankings. We know she hadn't been doing that as, uh, as someone who plays more by the rules uh, like she had been doing. And we had an NXT Cruiserweight Championship match. And Leo Rush defeating Akira Tozawa. Uh, sort of weird. We didn't get a 205 Live after SmackDown on Friday. No idea what's going on with 205 Live. Not sure how many people watch it. But now that the Cruiserweight division is also in NXT as well, boy does 205 Live seem unnecessary. Just put that stuff on, 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 on NXT. That was where the Cruiserweight Classic got over in Full Sail University. And sometimes it just feels like 205 Live is not important. But the NXT Cruiserweight matches do seem important. And Leo Rush picks up another defense of his Cruiserweight Championship here. Then we had Zaya Lee defeated Vanessa Bourne. She had defeated Aaliyah previously, and her kicks, well, a kick to the face of Aaliyah was said to break her nose. Vanessa Bourne didn't provide much competition for Zaya Lee here. After the match, Shayna Baszler, Marina Shafir, and Jessamine Duke came out, sort of took out Lee. This led, then led to a face-to-face -face confrontation between Rhea Ripley and Shayna Baszler. And I was telling uh, Jeff Moss, my co-host for the Monday Night War uh, show, Rhea Ripley and Shayna Baszler is the biggest rivalry in pro wrestling right now. Um, I'd have to think about that to, more to say if I actually believe it or not, but it's a really good feud. It's a really big rivalry between these two badasses. And for me, Shayna Baszler versus Rhea Ripley just really sums up what women's wrestling uh, can, can be and often is just two badass women trying to beat the hell out of each other. I could watch this Shayna Baszler-Rhea Ripley rivalry every day for 10 years. The War Games match... On Saturday, the, the women's war games match, just the way it worked out with 
Baszler's team having a four-on-two advantage, but Ripley winning anyway. Just tremendous stuff. And so Ripley wants a crack, another crack, actually. She's had one already, but a crack at Shayna Baszler and the NXT Women's Championship. So now when do we get that match? We don't have a takeover again until February. So we could get that match then. But we could just get it on regular NXT NXT TV as well. If perhaps WWE wants to pop a rating, I think Shayna Baszler versus Rhea Ripley for the NXT Women's Championship would definitely pop a rating. Then in the main event, so we had Finn Balor versus Tommaso Ciampa. And so it's not really, this is a battle between, in our rankings, NXT doesn't do rankings, but in our rankings, we had Ciampa was ranked number one because he's the former NXT champion who never lost his title. And then we had Finn Balor at number two because when he came back to NXT, I mean, this is a guy who's won Universal Championships. He's uh, one of the most successful NXT champions of all time. We couldn't put him way down on the list, uh, but we also couldn't put him ahead of the former champion who never lost his title. So we put him at number two. So this was a match between number one and number two in our rankings. And although they never said this was a number one contender match, the what happens here is going to play into who gets the next NXT championship match. So Adam Cole comes down during the match, causes a bit of a distraction, allows Finn Balor to pick up the win. After the match, however, Cole and Balor are posing over top of Ciampa, and then Balor gives a, a kick to Adam Cole, takes him out. So it's clear that Balor's not with Cole. It's not with Undisputed Era. He's also not with Ciampa. So it's possible we could have a three-way situation possibly coming up. I mean, Ciampa is owed a title shot since he's the former champion, never lost the title. Finn Balor beat Ciampa. So Finn Balor could be owed a title shot too. You could also say that Ciampa, that this was a title eliminator and Ciampa losing to Balor takes him out of the title contention. And then you get Cole versus Balor as the next NXT championship match. I don't know. There's... There's a few different ways they could go based on this result here of Finn Balor defeating uh, Tommaso Ciampa. But that's what happened, and that was NXT this week. Now, this is being recorded just, uh, well, it's now like a little after three there on uh, on Friday. So in five hours, SmackDown is going to air from the Legacy Arena in Birmingham, Alabama. Hardly anything announced for the show. The only thing really announced for the show is that Bray Wyatt is going to reveal a new face in the Firefly Funhouse. So nothing nothing else advertised for the show, but that in its own uh, definitely confirms that something newsworthy is going to come out of SmackDown this week. But that's where we're going to leave things off for this week. Thank you so much, everybody, for supporting this show. Uh, SpoilerFreeWrestling.com, our YouTube channels, my podcast with Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thanks again, everyone. I'm the Eye Guy from Spoiler Free Wrestling.